Welcome to Transformed by Grace, an in-depth Bible study of God's Word, presented by the Berean Bible Society. Join us each time on this station as Pastor Kevin brings the transforming message of God's grace revealed through the Holy Scriptures. class one day when their professor began a discussion to prove a point. What we're going to talk about today, the professor said, are the emotional extremes that many people go through. For example, what's the opposite of joy? He asked one student. Sadness, the student answered. The opposite of depression, he asked a young lady. Elation, she replied. Turning to a young man from Texas, he said, what's the opposite of woe? And the Texan replied, I suppose that would be giddy up. The prophet Elijah went through the full range of emotions in his ministry from the greatest heights of exhilaration and triumph to the lowest depths of despair. James 5.17 says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he was as human as we are. He went through the same emotions we experience. Sometimes we have a tendency to idealize the men and women of Scripture. But Elijah was just a man. He experienced joy and elation and discouragement and despondency. And when God paints a portrait of his servants, he doesn't hide their weaknesses from us. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah the prophet runs away. And he hits bottom. The amazing thing about this is that in chapter 18, Elijah had just had that dramatic showdown with the pagan prophets of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel. In that encounter, Elijah had issued the challenge to these prophets to call upon their god Baal to call down fire upon their sacrifice. And he would call upon God to call down fire upon his sacrifice and whoever's god answered them and did this, it would demonstrate who was the true and the living God. Of course, when the prophets of Baal tried, nothing happened. But when it was Elijah's turn, fire came down immediately and completely engulfed the sacrifice so that nothing was left showing Jehovah to be the true and the living God. Following this, since those prophets of Baal were shown to be false prophets, in obedience to the law of Moses, Elijah had those prophets put to death. In chapter 18, we see Elijah at his highest moment. In chapter 19, you see him at his lowest moment. Elijah's energy and emotions had peaked, and then they began to slide, and you next see him crippled by fear, hopelessness, and despair. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 4 read, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree. 
and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Verse 1, we are introduced to King Ahab. Ahab ruled over Israel for 22 years. 1 Kings 16.30 says, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And that's, that's saying a lot. Ahab was married to Jezebel, an evil woman who introduced Baal to worship to Israel. When people were referred to as a Jezebel, that's definitely not meant to be a compliment. Ahab and Jezebel teamed up in their wicked terror to reign over Israel together. Upon returning to his palace from Mount Carmel, where King Ahab had witnessed all that had happened, he rehearsed all that he'd seen to Queen Jezebel. Learning of Elijah's triumph and then the slaying of her prophets of Baal, Jezebel was infuriated and flew into a rage and she demanded Elijah's immediate death. The vindictive Jezebel promptly sends word to Elijah via messenger of her intent to kill him in retaliation for the death of her prophet prophets within 24 hours. In effect, Jezebel was saying to Elijah, by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. Elijah should have laughed, though, when she made that threat by her gods, it says there. She, he had just exposed those gods as being powerless and fake on Mount Carmel. Instead of laughing this message off, Jezebel's threat overwhelmed Elijah's faith. In his panic, he lost his handle on the power and provision of God, even though he had just experienced it in such a mighty way. Elijah's focus shifted from God to the problem. And we all do the exact same thing in life. In a moment of fear, Elijah forgot all God had done for him during the three years of his ministry and the amazing victory on Mount Carmel. And instead, he focused on Jezebel's intimidation, which shook him to the core and sends him into an emotional tailspin. Fear replaced Elijah's faith. And Elijah then tucks his tail between his legs and bolts and runs for his life, running a long, long way from Jezreel in the north in Israel where he was at, all the way to Beersheba, a hundred miles away, as far south in Israel as he could go. Once he was there, he left his servant in Beersheba and he ran away farther and bore deeply another full day's journey into the wilderness until he stumbled and fell in exhaustion under a juniper tree, or a scrag, which was a scraggly desert tree. The combination of emotional burnout, weariness, hunger, a deep sense of failure, and lack of faith brought Elijah into a deep state of despair. Elijah wished he would die and the Lord would take his life. And the ironic thing is, Elijah never did die. He was taken to heaven in the whirlwind. Out of his self-pity, Elijah tells the Lord that he wasn't anything special. He was no better than his ancestors. He says, I am not better than my fathers in verse 4. And no one ever said that he had to be. He had told himself, he had told himself that in his self-pity. Elijah was sure that his courageous ministry on Mount Carmel would bring Israel to its knees and turn them back to the Lord. 
His expectations were unfulfilled, so he considers himself a failure. And no better than those who went before him, so he was throwing up his hands and giving up. But this chapter shows how patiently God deals with us when we're low, and when we feel like giving up, and when we feel like a failure and we can't do anything right. God gave Elijah no sermon, no rebuke. He does not shame him. No lightning bolt cracked from the heavens with God telling them to get on your feet, Elijah, snap out of it and stop feeling sorry for yourself. God didn't treat Elijah roughly at all. Instead, God was patient and kind. And in his mercy, he met Elijah where he was at and helped him in his discouragement and despair and brought him out of it. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 5 to 8 read, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, Behold, then an angel touched him, and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose, and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. In answer to Elijah's prayer to die, God just let him sleep. He allowed Elijah a time of rest and refreshment. Nothing ever seems quite right when you're tired. And fatigue can lead to all sorts of odd thinking and imaginations. When the heart is heavy and the mind and body are weary, that's not a good combination. And we don't think straight. And sometimes the best remedy is sleep. Just take a nap. I like that remedy. Naps are wonderful. But God knew that the most important medicine Elijah needed right then was rest. While Elijah was asleep, God's messenger came to care for his needs. The visitor was the angel of the Lord, verse 7 says, which is an Old Testament title for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ prepared a simple meal of freshly baked bread and refreshing water. And this isn't the only time that the Lord cooks in Scripture. Later, he prepared a breakfast of bread and fish for Peter and six of the other disciples in a post-resurrection appearance at the Sea of Galilee. The Lord wakes Elijah, tells him to arise and eat. When Elijah looked around, he found fresh bread and a jar full of water prepared for him. So he ate all the bread and downed all the water, and then he laid back down and went back to sleep. Kind of reminds you of what you do at Thanksgiving. You feast, and then you collapse and go, go to sleep. After allowing him to sleep some more, the Lord returned a second time and told him to get up again and eat some more food as he needed this for the journey that was ahead of him. After this meal, Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that meal. That was no five-hour energy. This was 40-day energy meal that the Lord prepared for him. God's strength was given to Elijah through this meal, and Elijah then travels 200 miles south to Horeb, the Mount of God, or Mount Sinai, the mountain where God gave his law to Moses. We'll be returning to the program in just a minute. But first, we'd like to take this time to thank you, our partners, for making these programs possible. If you would like to access our library of helpful Bible study tools, go to BereanBibleSociety.org. 
Two Great Commissions is a 28-page booklet written by Pastor Kevin J. Sadler. This booklet presents the stark contrast between the Lord's commission to the Twelve Apostles and His commission to the Apostle Paul for the dispensation of grace in which we live. In this work, Pastor Kevin Sadler shows from Scripture how we are commissioned to rescue the perishing by sharing the gospel of grace and to shed light on the truth of God's revelation of the mystery. To order your copy, contact the Berean Bible Society for pricing and availability at 262-255-4750. That's 262-255-4750. Or visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. To receive our free full-color 32-page monthly magazine, The Berean Searchlight, call 262-255-4750 or subscribe online at www.bereanbiblesociety.org. Thank you again for your generous gifts. And now, back to the teaching with Pastor Kevin. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 to 14 read, And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Arriving at Mount Sinai, Elijah lodged in a cave on the mount. God then addressed him with a simple question. What are you doing here, Elijah? God knew why Elijah was there, but he wanted him to answer. God is not asking because he needs information, but because he wanted Elijah to think. To think about what brought him to this place and to this low point in his life. And Elijah needed to vocalize what was wrong in his life to explain what he thought the problem was. And once Elijah verbalized his belief of what was wrong, then God dealt with the false beliefs, the false ideas that were fueling the despair of Elijah. When we get to low points in life, we should put ourselves in this question by God. What are you doing here? And then put your name. What is it that's making me so down? What has happened that I have allowed myself to get here and to be so fearful and so low? Elijah's honest answer showed the depths of his despondency. To paraphrase it, he replied, I've been beating my head against the wall serving you, Lord. Nobody's listening. Everything seems to be just falling apart around me. I'm all alone. 
I'm the only voice left for you, God. The people of Israel have killed all of your prophets, Lord, and now I'm next. They're trying to kill me. All he could see was negativity, a rejected covenant, broken altars, and dead prophets. Elijah viewed the Israelites as rebellious against the Mosaic covenant and that it was a rebellion that his ministry was completely unable to stop, and so he felt like a complete failure. God does not rebuke Elijah for any of his words. And so we should know that when we honestly voice these kind of things to God in prayer, and we tell him about our frustrations in life, he is patient and he is kind. And God wants us to know that he is the remedy to these feelings. After giving an answer that still revealed his shaky emotional state, God's next step for Elijah was that he needed to rediscover who God is. He needed a fresh vision of the greatness and glory of God and how he works. And this fresh vision is always available to us in God's word here. But this vision would not be as Elijah expected or as we would expect. God told him, to come out of the cave, stand on the mountain, because the Lord God himself was about to pass by him. Elijah doesn't obey the Lord's instructions to come out of the cave. Instead, he's feeling so down, he's just stayed in his cave. And suddenly, a violent, rushing, mighty wind swept across the ridges. It roared through the canyons and tore at the mountain, broke Rocks into pieces and stones and boulders came loose and crashed down upon one another. But the Bible in verse 11 says that God was not in that wind. Then an eerie and powerful earthquake shook the ground violently and shook the entire mountain as Elijah was in one of its caves. But verse 11 says God was not in that earthquake. This was followed by a furious great sheet of fire passing before the mountain as Elijah saw it and felt its great heat and power. But verse 12 says that God wasn't in that fire. God was not in any of these mighty upheavals and demonstrations of great power. When the wind stopped blowing, when the earth stopped trembling, and the fire disappeared, there was utter stillness on the mountain. The contrast between the noise and the silence was great. And in the intensity of the silence came a still, small voice, a soft, whispering voice. And God was in that voice. When the prophet heard that voice, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. He stepped out of the cave and met the Lord. When he heard the still small voice, he recognized the voice of God and he was awestruck by the revelation of God's holy and majestic still small voice. God's power was was revealed not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. His power was revealed in His Word, in the still, small voice of God. The quiet whisper of God was so holy, Elijah had to cover himself. It was so powerful that it got him on his feet and drew him out of his cave. And we need to rediscover God. And 
learn about God through the pages of His Holy Word, where He speaks to each of us with a still, small voice, a gentle, quiet voice. This is where God's power is revealed to us. It has the power to transform our lives. And like Elijah, the Word can draw us out of our caves of despair and discouragement. God was showing Elijah that his presence and power isn't revealed in the manner we usually think of it or in the things we expect, in what's loud and what's impressive and what's dramatic. We often think of God working in these mammoth-sized, spectacular, colossal, impressive, sophisticated, loud, bright, ground-shaking, big things. But he often, he's not in those things. Almighty God does His work quietly, often imperceptibly, and God's greatest miracles are not in the big demonstrations of power and might, but in humble little things, in the small, quiet, everyday things of life, in little daily miracles, in the day-to-day miracle of your spiritual growth, in the transformation of your lives, by God's Word, in His grace. God's working and power aren't always packaged in the way we expect. God's power is revealed through the quiet reading, learning, and application of His Word. Through prayer. Through churches that are faithful to His Word and show His love. Through marriages and families that are built on Christ and the Word of God. And through the Gospel being shared with the unbelieving. J. Oswald Sanders writes, The whispers of Calvary are infinitely more potent than the thunder of Sinai in bringing people to salvation. God's still small voice brings His word to the listening ear and heart. Most of the time, God works in tones of gentle love and quiet persuasion in little miracles of everyday life. Before refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, and a tightly fitted door. In winter, when streams and lakes were frozen, large blocks of ice were cut, hauled to the ice houses, and covered with sawdust. Often the ice would last well into the summer. One man lost a valuable watch while working in an ice house one time. He searched diligently for it carefully raking through the sawdust, but he couldn't find it. His fellow workers also tried, and they looked, but their efforts too proved futile. A small boy who had heard about the fruitless search slipped into the ice house during the noon hour, and soon he came back out with the watch. Amazed, the man asked him, How did you do it? How did you find it? And he said, I closed the door, laid down in the sawdust, and kept very still, and soon I heard the watch ticking. Often the question is not whether God is speaking, but whether we are being still enough, slowing down enough in life, being quiet enough to hear it and to listen. We live in a world that's full of noise, full of clutter, but God speaks by His Word. 
And when we get alone with Him and tune the rest of the world and its voices out, we will hear it. For the second time, God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? And just like God's presence and power wasn't in the things that we expected, Elijah's answer here isn't what you'd expect. Because, but it's real. It's real because often we're stubborn. We're stubborn in our low times. Elijah had nothing new to say to the Lord. The answer was the exact same whine as before. I've been very jealous for you serving you, Lord, and nobody's listening. I'm all alone. I'm the only voice left for you. The people of Israel have killed all your prophets, and now I'm next. They're trying to kill me. The honest answer to the question, what are you doing here, Elijah, was, I'm having a personal pity party, and I really like it here. In verses 15 to 18, in response to Elijah, God says, go. He tells him, go, and then he has him do something. He gave Elijah something to do, showing Elijah in his prophetic office that he had a duty to perform. He had a job to do. There was still a place for him and things to get done for the Lord. And this teaches us that to overcome discouragement, we need to get the focus off of ourselves and on to others and get involved in the lives of other people and in serving the Lord. God wanted him to make a choice of godly action based on obedience rather than inaction based on emotions. And so God sends Elijah back north on another mission to anoint Hazael, king over Syria, and to anoint Jehu, a captain in Ahab's army, as king over Israel, and to anoint Elisha as his prophetic successor. And through Hazael of Syria... King Jehu and Elisha, they destroyed Baal worship in Israel. By the time the last of these men died, the worship of Baal had been barred in Israel. God was calling Elijah to stop weeping over the past, to stop running away from the present. It was time for him to start preparing others for the future and for the work God would do through others. Life wasn't all about Elijah, and Elijah wasn't expected to do it all is what he was taught in that. And as far as this I'm all alone and I'm a failure stuff, God sets the record straight. He says there were 7,000 faithful people out there who had not bowed to Baal and were faithful to Jehovah. Elijah was not alone. God had a whole battalion of servants that Elijah didn't know about and forgot to count as he was wallowing in self-pity. This teaches us to that no matter how wicked the world scene may appear, God always has His people and a remnant that is faithful to Him. Through all these things, rest, the still small voice of God, giving Elijah a task to do and putting his focus on others and serving the Lord, and giving him a close, genuine friend in Elisha to work with, the Lord gently brought Elijah, the runaway, out of his despair and back into active service to Him. We need to keep these things in mind from this passage and recall them the next time we're feeling down and are under the juniper tree. Thank you for watching Transformed by Grace. Thank you again for tuning in to Transformed by Grace. We appreciate your prayer support and the financial gifts. The purpose and mission of the Berean Bible Society is to help you understand the whole counsel of the Word of God 
For more information, visit our website at www.bereanbiblesociety.org or give us a call at 262-255-4750. Or if you prefer, write us at the Berean Bible Society, P.O. Box 756, Germantown, Wisconsin, 53022. Now until next time, may you be transformed by God's grace.